This is an emergency transmission from TV Cream. Hello, I'm Graham and this is TV Cream Stays Indoors. In this podcast, TV Cream sends someone a link to an old TV show and then, once they've watched it, calls them up to find out what they made of it. Today, I'm talking to my brother Jack. We're twins. He lives in Glasgow and I live in London. Okay, so Jack, I sent you a YouTube link to the very first episode of Call It. Which originally aired on BBC Two on the 30th of August 1985 at 10pm. Before you even watched the show, what was your reaction to my choice? My reaction was that I remember um, watching that first episode and being excited about watching it. But I don't remember why I was excited about watching it. Now, I wonder if... Because I also remember being excited about watching it. And uh, let's be mm. clear, we watched it together. Somehow, the news had filtered down to us that Jasper Carrot had been involved in this. Yeah. And Jasper Carrot was a big deal. How in this age had that news got out there? How did we know? I don't know. So Jasper Carrot, I think, was probably doing Carrot Confidential at the time. Um, and I was going to try and dig into this. But to be honest, I forgot to. Um, I wonder if Phil Cool was on Saturday Superstore and was doing impressions. I also think perhaps he might have been on Saturday Live. Um, but yeah, I, I do remember being excited that Phil Cool was going to be on his own programme. But what about the, the this kind of the Jasper Carrot connection? I mean, how did we know that nugget back then? I have a feeling that it came from our big brother, but then lots of things did. How would he have known? It just seems a weird thing to to be appraised of before watching yeah. Call It. I mean, we do know that that it was the case because Jasper Carrot did develop his career. But why we would have known at that age when we were, what, 12 years old? I have no idea. I just, I can't fathom it at all. So can you describe then, for the sake of the listener, what Call It is? So Call It is, um, it is a stand-up show and the format is incredibly simple because it is simply full call in front of a studio audience. There's no inserts, there's no sketches, there's no guest artists. It's just him doing half an hour of his stand-up and impressions. Oh, hello. People keep telling me I've got a mobile face. And they're right. Take it with me everywhere I go. Um, the very first thing that Phil does on stage in this episode is he, he does a gurn. And watching it now, yeah. I thought it was as if he was kind of acclimatising viewers to this new breed of talent. Do you think there is something different going on with him, isn't there? And it, it, we do need to kind of to, to wade gently into what Phil Cool is about. So, yes. And, and I think it also, the other thing that's, that's quite weird watching it now is I think someone pulling a funny face somehow isn't acceptable anymore. But, um, I mean, that was his USP, wasn't it? Was that Phil Cool was known for having a rubbery face and that not only was he able to vocally mimic people, he could sort of transmogrify his face so that he looked like them. Now, whether he actually could or not, in retrospect, I think is something we can talk about. But that was definitely his thing. And I think also the other thing about it is that watching that episode, you realise how little material there is. And in part, it's, it's to make space for him to doing his kind of transmogrifications, which seem to be an important part of his act. It's a gentle pace, isn't it? Well, you might say gentle. I think it's actually quite slow in retrospect. Um, and actually, the whole setup is very gentle. If you, if you look at the set, 
that he's on. It's a very um, traditional BBC Light Entertainment set. Uh, the backdrop um, as it starts is um, uh, a lovely blue. There is uh, a projection uh, of a small moon behind some clouds. And then there's superfluous stairs as well, which of course is, is a hallmark of BBC Light Entertainment. So in that respect, that um, the look of it's very gentle. Um, and his, uh, the, the pace of his de delivery is extremely gentle, if not um, terribly slow. Took it to London a couple of years ago to do a screen test for a British telecom advert. I got to like walk out of these rhododendron bushes onto a moonlit lawn and kind of go. I mean, it's interesting that um, you mentioned the fact that there is this kind of stenciled moon lighting effect on the back wall. And there is this uh, idea, isn't it, that the show kind of waxes and wanes, doesn't it, through different phases. And we have different lighting cues as you get to the end of one routine and then it kind of tips you into another. It's very theatrical, isn't it? Yes. Uh, and actually, so when, when that was the thing that was very clear to me, which is that th this episode is made up of three routines, is from what I can see. So um, routine number one is him doing a shtick about ads. Some adverts, it's the voice that people remember the most. Uh, and then we move into another thing, which starts off as if it's going to be about school, but actually isn't. It's about religion. I went to a very, very strict Roman Catholic school where religious instruction took precedence over every other subject, right? And the religion thing then transmogrifies into a thing about the Pope. Talking about religion, man. What about this Pope? And then his last thing is a question time routine. Good evening. <laughs> Welcome once again to question time. And so there's a cute light change at three times to say, OK, here we go, we've just finished routine number one and now we're moving into the next one. And again, it feels very traditional and old-fashioned when you see it. When we talk about moving between the different phases, I wondered if his, his, his initial kind of stepping off conceits are really strong enough. He tees up the, you know, the first section by saying... But sometimes, you know... Adverts do go wrong. No, not really. And I think that um, what what it feels like, particularly with that sequence, is that he thinks that he has a number of voices that he can do, and he's then retrofitted uh, a routine around that to try and try and let him do them. In actual fact, one of the things that I was quite surprised about is that um, I felt a lot of his um, uh, his voice impressions weren't very good at all. So at one point, he does a Carlsberg ad. <sighs> Charlesburg, <laughs> probably the best lager in the world. But actually, I didn't think his Carlsberg voice was very good, and that's that sort of traditional Carlsberg kind of voice, which I think most people can do. And then he uh, segues from that into a Mr. Kipling ad, which again is not a very good Mr. Kipling. This Sunday, <laughs> Mr. Kipling is <laughs> He's taking it all for a ride. So are you saying that already sort of earlier into the show, were you disappointed? Was he not living up to your memories? Yes, I was disappointed. And he actually does save it uh, and turn it around a little bit at one point, which we'll probably get on to. But I think it's... Um, uh, there's a there's a quite mannered approach about how he prepares for each of his impressions. Uh, and so you can sort of see that there's a kind of... Um, you know, um, it's almost as if he's an actor showing you his process because he sort of works up and builds into his bits of business, which I kind of found off-putting. And I think that it's only justified if the end result was very impressive. And certainly in that first sequence um, where he's talking about ads, it just kind of isn't really. 
Well, see, that was a bit I did like because I think that's the that's kind of the drama because you can see him going into a slow transformation. You're thinking, oh, oh what, what what's about to happen now? And this is kind of um, faux process that you're seeing on screen. So I think I, I think his the, the gentleness, the way he eases you in and out of his impressions, kind of gets him through. I, I think it gives you a he builds up some goodwill. At least he did with me watching it. Right. Um, and what do you think of the um, the quality of the material then in that bit? I couldn't quite pin him down. I mean, it's very hard anyway to get a handle on who he, he is and what his deal is. Yeah. Um, there's yeah. literate whimsy. He talks of a flock of nuns. Uh, and then at another point, he calls the Pope a right little belter, which I think is a little bit Victoria Wood. But I mean, uh-huh. how would you... How would you sum up his tone? What is he doing? Well, I mean, I think he does rely on um, being able to... So he does that thing that um, is a quite common stand-up comedian thing where he says lots of words very quickly, which then results in the audience giving a round of applause, irrespective of how funny it is or not. But again, I just sort of felt it was quite crowbarry, quite a lot of his feed lines. So, for example, one of the I, I took a note of this. He actually says, you can always tell if a gang of nuns have been through the jungle, which you just think that's such a weird setup for a joke. Or he does another gear change, talking about religion. What about this Pope? Okay, again, that's nothing that yes. anyone would ever say. I think this is the problem yeah. that um, that you, know, you often find is the segue, that they feel that, okay, it's a one-man show. This is mellifluous, ongoing. We have to have these kind of segues. And maybe with the lighting changes, he should have just then kind of, you know, that's the end of that bit maybe queued up some applause and then poof, off we go again on a new thing. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, so. But I do think the whole thing smacks of that he's got his marquee impressions and everything else is built around that. So they're the tent poles for the episode. And you just sort of, you can imagine people going, look, that, Phil, that's the gold. So you have to write around those moments. And, and this... Uh, and so therefore, I think it does end up feeling quite crowbarry as he tries to think, right, how can I get from E.T. into the Pope into uh, his Robin Day. Um, And so everything else falls secondary to that. So if you're not buying his impressions, I think then actually your enjoyment of the whole thing falls down. He does a little piece about Jehovah's Witnesses coming to the door. And when he's sort of acting that out, he does the door creak sound. Now, I think he might be the first stand-up comic. That then became a regular peep round the door little thing that all is he the first door creaker i think he might be although i think he also tries to do something else as well which doesn't work quite as well which he does that for a knock on the door which yeah, i don't think catch on. and it was interesting wasn't it because as soon as he mentions jehovah's witnesses the audience start laughing so he knows he's on safe territory there um and I, again i'm not sure people would laugh at that in the same way now although there's obviously other archetypes that you could use these days so he knows that he's on safe ground there and then what he does is his topper is not only is he now pretending yeah. to be a jehovah's witness person is that he does them in that sort of prat voice that he does Hello. and then after that once you have those two things you don't really need a lot of comedy material. No, what, so you think the premise is is almost enough? The audience are just like, oh, brilliant. Jehovah's Witnesses. It's, it's Jehovah's Witness and they sound like a bit of a prat. The final movement has uh, Phil staging an episode of Question Time. And it's a well-heeled conceit, isn't it, to do that kind of thing? Because you can wodge in as many impressions as possible. He doesn't really go for any big hitters there. Although I thought his Arthur Scargill is superb. All you people who say you can see through me... Just let me make myself perfectly clear. <laughs> this dispute has been about jobs. Jobs and communities. 
Nothing more, nothing less. No, yes, so let's just um, cover off who he does here. So he does Robin Day. <laughs> Will our panel attempt to uh, answer questions during my interruptions? <laughs> uh, and my note here was, I didn't think his Robin Day was that great. Keith Joseph, who I'm, who I, who I, I kind of vaguely remember Keith Joseph. In my opinion, most teachers should either be shot, <laughs> skinned, boiled in oil, <laughs> or at least have the common human decency to accept a huge pay cut. It's very, very, very slow, but looks to be quite well observed. Um, then we get a Roy Hatter Smell for Bobby. As far as I can prove, which isn't very far, the saving bottle fossil fuels is going to last well into the next century. And no matter which party is in power. Doesn't really do anything more than spitting image that had already done at that point. And then he chucks into the mix. So here's something I was going to ask you. Is um, So the conceit is you've got Robin Day presenting question time. Robin then takes a question from the audience. And then that question is put to one of those panellists, Skeet Joseph, Arthur Scoggle or Roy Hattersley. But that last question seems to come from David Bellamy. <laughs> so Robin, I like to ask Roy Hattersley, is the Labour Party we go in power? What are they going to do about the burning of fossil fuel? Had I missed that the two audience members prior to that were also people in particular? I didn't notice that either. It did seem weird. And actually, what, what you want to do with that was... This was the... Um, not that I'm trying to tell Phil Cool how he should have done his job, but surely in a sketch like that, you, you have a load of crazies in the audience. You have your Magnus Pikes, your Lenny Henrys, your... Yeah. Um, you you yeah. know, uh, your um, Frank Spencer... They're the ones asking the questions. And yes. then that's the classic funny, isn't it? And then they're, you know, they're butting up against Arthur Scargill. So I found this whole, this question time section really slow, I have to say, and, and not really that funny. And again, I think particularly when he was doing Keith Joseph, it comes down to the fact that what he's doing is he's building up the performance of his impression, which then just slowed the whole pace down. And it was, and it was um, excruciatingly slow. What, what impression is even of 85 would think, oh, I've got Keith Joseph in my repertoire, you know, um, you know that's going to be a zinger. Yeah, I know it is. It is a bit weird. He doesn't strike me as a sort of heavy hitter from the time. Um, whereas um, Robin Day, Scargill, and Roy Hattersley's are, are definitely um, from the the big league of impersonations. I would have said from the eighties. In a notional family tree of comedy, if you think of those rock family mm. trees, notionally, I mean, where yeah. is Phil? Who is he nestling with? Who's Who's on the same line as him? Who's above him? Who's below him? So um, in the comedy family tree, I can see that uh, you have Jasper Carrot and then uh, coming down off him is Phil Cool. To his left is Richard Digens. Yes, I agree with that. And you, you could certainly see Phil Cool. He could, you know, be, be in a folk club, couldn't he? You could imagine him doing a little spot there. I have a feeling that he did sometimes do stuff with the, with the guitar. Um, because the other person who he reminds me of who's then in that is then you've got Mike Harding and then also then the other one that comes to mind is uh, Jethro so I suppose they're all these sort of storytellers aren't they and then if you then take a line going back up up above uh, Jasper Carrot then we're probably feeding into Dave Allen but is there also maybe to the other side of of Phil on this uh, family tree are there people like Chris Barry and uh, Rory Bremner do you think um 
I'm not sure, and I think perhaps the distinction might be my assumption around their respective politics. So he seems to nestle more closely to Digents to me, because I can imagine that he isn't as liberal and as trendy, perhaps, as some of these other people. Not that Chris Barry is is particularly liberal or trendy, but I think nonetheless you you more associate him with the spitting image, uh, Saturday Live, and the, the hard edge comedy um, of that time. I think the thing about Chris Barry that makes him quite different is that you don't think of Chris Barry as someone who would be writing his own scripts and having his own sort of sensibility and approach to, to something. I think you always think of Chris Barry as a guy who's delivering somebody else's script. But So Phil Cole has the... He's got the credibility of the fact that he's he's writing and doing his own thing, but it's more a folk singer writing mm-hmm. and doing his own thing than an indie singer writing and doing their own thing. Yes, absolutely. And I think there's this thing where you had that emergence of alternative comedy in the mid-80s. There was a period of flux where you didn't quite know who was in and who was out. So Helen Pace were in, of course, for a bit, weren't they? Um, and uh, Jasper Carrot also appeared on Saturday Live. But then over time, it became apparent that actually those people didn't really have a place and alternative comedy in a, that traditional sense moved far more towards Ben Elton, The Young Ones, Rowan Atkinson, Fry and Laurie, those sorts of people. And then these folk comedians who'd tried to be part of that movement were sort of shunted back out into folk comedian land. Uh, a VHS was rushed to the shops after the first series, but uh, uh, uh-huh. Phil didn't really sustain his fame. I think he did two more series after this. I know he had some health issues, but I wonder if part of the problem with this show is that really by the end of it, maybe even by the end of the first series, he'd kind of shown us everything he'd got. Well, you see, the thing is, um, looking at him, I thought he would have done really well on Britain's Got Talent because you could get three great routines out of him and then he's done, which would be enough for him to win the series. And I think the thing is, is unlike so Jasper Carrot, Mike Hardy, and Richard Digents, their their main strength is the material that they write. Whereas with Phil Cool, his main strength is his performance, and so that is the thing that does pull after a while. Once you've seen him do Rolf Harris a few times, or you've seen him do Ronnie Reagan transmogrifying into a monster, then you've you've sort of seen his box of tricks. So really, what you're saying is that despite um, all his credibility, he had sadly fashioned himself into a novelty act i think so yeah and i think actually also he wasn't really that credible in retrospect i think it was one of those things where you thought oh look here's a guy who's doing it all himself there are no tricks here there's no illusions um but actually it's the content that then defines whether he's credible or not and so when you've seen that a few times um and you realize that it is just a reasonably small albeit great box of tricks then the credibility does fall away somewhat So this is a time where we're all staying indoors. Was, call it, a welcome kind of intermission for you in that, or was it actually a bit of a drudge? Uh, no, I th- well, I, the the beginning and the end uh, were a bit of a drudge for me watching Call It. The middle bit, the with Pope, all that stuff I thought was quite fun, and it made me feel uh, nostalgic for Phil Call and how much I enjoyed him. There was a bit of frustration because I do remember really loving um, Phil Call at, uh, at the time, and so it was a shame not to be able to reignite that that sense of it. Um, lastly, then, Jack, how are you finding life in lockdown? Well, to be honest, um, I found life in lockdown uh, quite unclear at this point because we've been self-isolating in our house 
um, for over a week. And because we're at the beginning of what might turn out to be quite a long process, you sort of feel like I'm probably not in my routine. The thing that I am finding enjoyable is it is an opportunity to start ticking off stuff that you've been meaning to do and things that you've been meaning to watch that you haven't. So one of the things that I'm hoping to do at some point is to actually watch the old BBC Quatermass serials because I've never watched any of them. Okay, Jack, well, thank you very much for watching Call It. Thanks for talking to me about it. Now, stay indoors. Stay indoors.